How blessed to note that this unspeakably solemn passage ends with, But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. That is a precious promise for faith to lay hold of, to plead before God, and to expect an answer thereto. For our God is not a deaf or impotent one like Baal. One would have thought those priests of Baal had perceived that Elijah was only mocking them when he lashed them with such cutting irony. For what sort of a God must he be which answered to the prophet's description? Yet so infatuated and stupid were those devotees of Baal that they do not appear to have discerned the drift of his words, but rather to have regarded them as containing good advice. Accordingly, they roused themselves to yet greater earnestness, and by the most barbarous measures strove to move their God by the sight of the blood which they shed out of love to him and zeal in his service, and in which they supposed he delighted. What poor miserable slaves are idolaters, whose objects of worship can be gratified with human gore and with self-inflicted torments of their worshippers. It has ever been true, and still is today, that the dark places of the earth are full of the habitations of cruelty. Psalm 74:20. How thankful we should be if a sovereign God has mercifully delivered us from such superstitions. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets, till the blood gushed out upon them. Verse 28. What a concept they must have held of their deity, who required such cruel lacerations at their hands. Similar sights may be witnessed today in heathendom. The service of Satan, whether in the observance of idolatrous worship or in the practice of immoralities, whilst it promises indulgence to men's lust, is cruel to their persons and tends to torment them in this world. Jehovah expressly forbade his worshippers to cut themselves, Deuteronomy 14.1 He indeed requires us to mortify our corruptions, but bodily severities are no pleasure to him. He desires only our happiness, and never requires one thing which has not a direct tendency to make us more holy, that we may be more happy, for there cannot be any real happiness apart from holiness. And it came to pass, when midday was past, and they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that there was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. Verse 29. Thus they continued praying and prophesying, singing and dancing, cutting themselves and bleeding until the time when the evening sacrifice was offered in the temple at Jerusalem, which was at 3 p.m. For six hours, without intermission, had they called upon their God, but all the exertions and implorings of Baal's prophets were unavailing. No fire came down to consume their sacrifice. Surely the length to which they had gone was enough to move the compassion of any deity. And since the heavens remained completely silent, did it not prove to the people that the religion of Baal and his worship was a delusion and a sham? There was neither voice, nor any to answer, nor any that regarded. How this exposed the powerlessness of false gods. They are impotent creatures, unable to help their votaries in the hour of need. They are useless for this life, how much more so for the life to come. Nowhere does the imbecility which sin produces more plainly evidence itself than in idolatry. It makes utter fools of its victims, as was manifest there on Carmel. The prophets of Baal reared their altar and placed upon it the sacrifice, 
and then called upon their God for the space of six hours to evidence his acceptance of their offering, but all in vain. Their importunity met with no response, the heavens were as brass. No tongue of fire leaped from the sky to lick up the flesh of the slain bullock. The only sound heard was the cries of anguish from the lips of the frantic priests as they maltreated themselves till their blood gushed forth. And, my reader, if you be a worshipper of idols, and continue so, you shall yet discover that your God is just as impotent and disappointing as was Baal. Is your belly your God? Do you set your heart upon enjoying the fat of the land, eating and drinking, not to live, but living to eat and drink? Does your table groan beneath the luxuries of the earth, while many today are lacking its necessities? Then know you that, if you persist in this wickedness and folly, the hour is coming when you shall discover the madness of such a course. Is pleasure your God? Do you set your heart upon a ceaseless whirl of gaiety, rushing from one form of entertainment to another, spending all your available time and money in visiting the garish shows of Vanity Fair? Are your hours of recreation made up of a continual round of excitement and merriment? Then know you that, if you persist in this folly and wickedness, the hour is coming when you shall taste of the bitter dregs which lie at the bottom of such a cup. Is mammon your god? Do you set your heart upon material riches, bending all your energies to the obtaining of that which you imagine will give you power over men, a place of prominence in the social world, and enable you to procure those things which are supposed to make for comfort and satisfaction? Is it the acquisition of property, a large bank balance, the possession of stocks and shares for which you are bartering your soul? Then know you that, if you persist in such a senseless and evil course, the time is coming when you shall discover the worthlessness of such things and their powerlessness to mitigate your remorse. Oh, the folly, the consummate madness of serving false gods. From the highest viewpoint it is madness, for it is an affront unto the true God, a giving unto some other object that which is due unto him alone, an insult which he will not tolerate or pass by. But even on the lowest ground it is crass folly, for no false god, no idol, is capable of furnishing real help at the time man needs help most of all. No form of idolatry, no system of false religion, no god but the true one, can send miraculous answers to prayer, can supply satisfactory evidence that sin is put away, can give the Holy Spirit, who, like fire, illumines the understanding, warms the heart, and cleanses the soul. A false god could not send down fire on Mount Carmel, and he cannot do so today. Then turn to the true God, my reader, while there is yet time. Ere passing on, there is one other point which should be noted in what has been before us, a point which contains an important lesson for the superficial age. Let us state it thus. The expenditure of great earnestness and enthusiasm is no proof of a true and good cause. There is a large class of shallow-minded people today who conclude that a display of religious zeal and fervor is a real sign of spirituality, and that such virtues fully compensate for whatever lack of knowledge and sound doctrine there may be. Give me a place, say they, where there is plenty of life and warmth, even though there be no depth to the preaching, rather than a sound ministry which is cold and unattractive. Ah, my reader, all is not gold that glitters. Those prophets of Baal were full of earnest zeal and fervor, but it was in a false cause. 
and brought down nothing from heaven. Then take warning therefrom, and be guided by God's word, and not by what appeals to your emotions or love of excitement. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me, and all the people came near unto him. Verse 30 Clearly evident was it that nothing could be gained by waiting any longer. The test which had been proposed by Elijah, which had been approved by the people, and which had been accepted by the false prophets, had convincingly demonstrated that Baal could have no claim to be the true God. The time had thus arrived for the servant of Jehovah to act. Remarkable restraint had he exercised all through those six hours, while he had allowed his opponents to occupy the stage of action, breaking the silence only once to goad them on to increased endeavor. But now he addressed the people, bidding them to come near unto himself, that they might the better observe his actions. They responded at once, no doubt curious to see what he would do, and wondering whether his appeal to heaven would be more successful than had been that of the prophets of Baal. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Verse 30. Mark well his first action, which was designed to speak unto the hearts of those Israelites. Another has pointed out that here on Carmel, Elijah made a threefold appeal unto the people. First he had appealed to their conscience, when he asked and then exhorted them, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Verse 21. Second, he had appealed to their reason, when he had proposed the trial should be made between the prophets of Baal and himself, that the God that answereth by fire, let him be God. Verse 24. And now, by repairing the altar of the Lord, he appealed to their hearts. Therein he has left an admirable example for the servants of God in every age to follow. The ministers of Christ should address themselves unto the consciences, the understandings, and the affections of their hearers, for only thus can the truth be adequately presented, the principal faculties of men's souls be reached, and a definite decision for the Lord be expected from them. A balance must be preserved between the law and the gospel. Conscience must be searched, the mind convinced, the affections warmed, if the will is to be moved into action. Thus it was with Elijah on Carmel. And Elijah said unto all the people, Come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. How strong and unwavering was the prophet's confidence in his God. He knew full well what his faith and prayer had obtained from the Lord, and he had not the slightest fear that he would now be disappointed and put to confusion. The God of Elijah never fails any who trust in him with all their hearts. But the prophet was determined that this answer by fire should be put beyond dispute. He therefore invited the closest scrutiny of the people as he repaired the broken altar of Jehovah. They should be in the nearest proximity so that they might see for themselves there was no trickery, no insertion of any secret spark beneath the wood on which the slain bullock was laid. Truth does not fear the closest investigation. It does not shun the light but courts it. It is the evil one and his emissaries who love darkness and secrecy and act under the cloak of mysticism. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. Verse 30 There is far more here than meets the eye at first glance. Light is cast thereon by comparing the language of Elijah in 19.10 The children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars. 
According to the Mosaic law, there was only one altar upon which sacrifices might be offered, and that was where the Lord had fixed his peculiar residence, from the days of Solomon in Jerusalem. But before the tabernacle was erected, sacrifices might be offered in any place, and in the previous dispensation altars were built wherever the patriarch sojourned for any length of time, and it is probably unto them that Elijah alluded in 1910. This broken altar, then, was a solemn witness that the people had departed from God. The prophet's repairing of the same was a rebuking of the people for their sin, a confession of it on their behalf, and at the same time bringing them back to the place of beginning. And reader, this is recorded for our instruction. Elijah began by repairing the broken altar, and that is where we must begin if the blessing of heaven is to come again on the churches and on our land. In many a professing Christian home, there is a neglected altar of God. There was a time when the family gathered together and owned God in the authority of his law, in the goodness of his daily providence, in the love of his redemption and continuing grace. But the sound of united worship no longer is heard ascending from that home. Prosperity, worldliness, pleasure has silenced the accents of devotion. The altar has fallen down. The dark shadow of sin rests on that home. And there can be no approach to God while sin is unconfessed. They who hide sin cannot prosper. Proverbs 28.13 Sin must be confessed before God will respond with holy fire. And sin must be confessed in deed as well as in word. The altar must be set up again. The Christian must go back to the place of beginning. See Genesis 13 verses 1-4 through and Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 17, The Confidence of Faith And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. 1 Kings 18.31 This was striking and blessed, for it was taking the place of faith against the evidence of sight. There were present in that assembly only the subjects of Ahab, and consequently members of none but the ten tribes. But Elijah took twelve stones to build the altar with, intimating that he was about to offer sacrifice in the name of the whole nation. See Joshua 4.20 and Ezra 6.17 Thereby he testified to their unity, the union existing between Judah and the ten tribes. The object of their worship had originally been one and the same, and must be so now. Thus Elijah viewed Israel from the divine standpoint. In the mind of God, the nation had appeared before him as one from all eternity. Outwardly, they were now two. But the prophet ignored that division. He walked not by sight, but by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.7 This is what God delights in. Faith is that which honors him. And therefore does he ever own and honor faith wherever it is found. He did so here on Carmel, and he does so today. Lord, increase our faith. And what is the grand truth that was symbolized by this incident? Is it not obvious? Must we not look beyond the typical and natural Israel unto the antitypical and spiritual Israel, the church which is the body of Christ? Surely. Then what? This amid the widespread dispersion which now obtains, the children of God which are scattered abroad, John 11.52, amid the various denominations, we must not lose sight of the mystical and essential oneness of all the people of God. 
Here, too, we must walk by faith and not by sight. We should view things from the divine standpoint. We should contemplate that church which Christ loved and for which he gave himself as it exists in the eternal purpose and everlasting counsels of the Blessed Trinity. We shall never see the unity of the bride, the Lamb's wife, visibly manifested before our outward eyes until we behold her descending out of heaven, having the glory of God. But meanwhile, it is both our duty and privilege to enter into God's ideal, to perceive the spiritual unity of his saints, and to own that unity by receiving into our affections all who manifest something of the image of Christ. Such is the truth inculcated by the twelve stones used by Elijah. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob. Let us also take notice how Elijah was regulated here by the law of the Lord. God had given express directions about his altar. If thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Exodus 20, verses 25 and 26. In strict accordance with that divine statute, Elijah did not send for stones that had been quarried and polished by human art, but used rough and unhewn stones which lay upon the mountainside. He took what God had provided and not what man had made. He acted according to the divine pattern furnished him in the Holy Scriptures, for God's work must be done in the manner and method appointed by God. This too is written for our learning. Each several act on this occasion... Every detail of Elijah's procedure needs to be noted and pondered if we would discover what is required from us if the Lord is to show himself strong on our behalf. In connection with his service, God has not left things to our discretion nor to the dictates of either human wisdom or expediency. He has supplied us with a pattern, compare Hebrews 8.5, and he is very jealous of that pattern and requires us to be ordered by the same. Everything must be done as God has appointed. The moment we depart from God's pattern, that is, the moment we fail to act in strict conformity to a thus saith the Lord, we are acting in self-will and can no longer count upon his blessing. We must not expect the fire of God until we have fully met with his requirements. In view of what has just been pointed out, need we have any difficulty in discovering why the blessing of God has departed from the churches why his miracle-working power is no longer seen working in their midst. It is because there has been such woeful departure from his pattern, because so many innovations have come in, because they have employed carnal weapons in their spiritual warfare, because they have wickedly brought in worldly means and methods. In consequence, the Holy Spirit is grieved and quenched. Not only must the occupant of the pulpit heed the divine injunction and preach the preaching that I bid thee, Jonah 3.2, but the whole service, discipline, and life of the church must be regulated by the directions God has given. The path of obedience is the path of spiritual prosperity and blessing, but the way of self-will and self-seeking is one of impotency and disaster. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. Verse 32. Ah, uh, take note of that. He built an altar in the name of the Lord, that is, by his authority, for his glory. 
And thus should it ever be with us. Whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Colossians 3.17 This is one of the basic rules for the governance of all our actions. Oh, what a difference it would make if professing Christians were regulated thereby. How many difficulties would be removed and how many problems solved. The young believer often wonders whether this or that practice is right or wrong. Let it be brought to this touchstone. Can I ask God's blessing upon it? Can I do it in the name of the Lord? If not, then it is sinful. Alas, how much in Christendom is now being done under the holy name of Christ, which he has never authorized, which is grievously dishonoring to him, which is a stench in his nostrils. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. 2 Timothy 2.19 And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood. Verse 33 And here again observe how strictly Elijah kept to the pattern furnished him in the scriptures. Through Moses the Lord had given orders in connection with the burnt offering that he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests Aaron's sons shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order upon the wood. Leviticus 1 verses 6 through 8 Those details in the conduct of Elijah are the more noteworthy because of what is recorded of the prophets of Baal on this occasion. Nothing is said of their putting the word in order or of cutting the bullock in pieces and laying him on the wood but merely that they dressed it and called on the name of Baal. Verse 26 Ah, it is in these little things as men term them that we see the difference between the true and false servants of God. And he put the wood in order and cut the bullock in pieces and laid him on the wood. And is there not here also important instruction for us? The work of the Lord is not to be performed carelessly and hurriedly, but with great precision and reverence. Think of whose service we are engaged in if we be the ministers of Christ. Is he not richly entitled to our best? How we need to study to show ourselves approved unto God if we are to be workmen that needeth not to be ashamed. 2 Timothy 2.15 What a fearful word is that in Jeremiah. 48.10 margin Cursed be he that doeth the work of the Lord negligently. Then let us seek grace to heed this malediction in the preparing of our sermons or articles or whatsoever we undertake in the name of our Master. Searching indeed is that declaration of Christ's, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. Luke 16.10 Not only is the glory of God immediately concerned, but the everlasting weal or woe of immortal souls is involved when we engage in the work of the Lord. And he made a trench and said, Fill four barrels with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it the third time. And the water ran round about the altar, and he filled the trench also with water. Verses 32 to 35 How calm and dignified was his manner. There was no haste, no confusion. Everything was done decently and in order. He did not labor under the fear of failure, but was certain of the outcome. 
Some have wondered where so much water could be obtained after three years of drought, but it must be remembered that the sea was nearby, and doubtless it was from it that the water was brought, twelve barrels in all, again corresponding to the number of Israel's tribes. Ere passing on, let us pause and behold here the strength of the prophet's faith in the power and goodness of his God. The pouring of so much water upon the altar, the flooding of the offering and the wood beneath it, would make it appear utterly impracticable and unlikely for any fire to consume it. Elijah was determined that the divine interposition should be the more convincing and illustrious. He was so sure of God that he feared not to heap difficulties in his way, knowing that there can be no difficulty unto one who is omniscient and omnipotent. The more unlikely the answer was, the more glorified therein would be his master. O wondrous faith which can laugh at impossibilities, which can even increase them so as to have the joy of seeing God vanquish them. It is the bold and venturesome faith which he delights to honor. Alas, how little of this we now behold. True, this is a day of small things. Yea, it is a day when unbelief abounds. Unbelief is appalled by difficulties and schemes to remove them as though God needed any help from us. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. Verse 36 By waiting until the hour when the evening sacrifice was offered in the temple, Elijah acknowledged his fellowship with the worshippers at Jerusalem. And is there not a lesson in this for many of the Lord's people in this dark day? Living in isolated places, cut off from the means of grace, Yet they should recall the hour of the weekly preaching service and the prayer meeting, and at the same hour draw near unto the throne of grace, and mingle their petitions with those of their brethren away yonder in the church of their youth. It is our holy privilege to have and maintain spiritual communion with saints when bodily contact with them is no longer possible. So too may the sick and the aged, though deprived of public ordinances, Thus join in the general chorus of praise and thanksgiving. Especially should we attend to this duty and enjoy this privilege during the hours of the Lord's day. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. But something else, something deeper, something more precious was denoted by Elijah's waiting until that particular time. That evening sacrifice, which was offered every day in the temple at Jerusalem, three hours before sunset, pointed forward to the antitypical burnt offering, which was to be slain when the fullness of time should come. Relying on that great sacrifice for the sins of God's people, which the Messiah would offer at his appearing on earth, his servant now took his place by an altar which pointed forward to the cross. Elijah, as well as Moses, had an intense interest in that great sacrifice, as was clear from the fact that they spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem when they appeared and talked with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9, 30 and 31. It was his faith depending upon not the blood of the bullock, but the blood of Christ that Elijah now presented his petitions unto God. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near, that is, unto the altar which he had built and on which he had laid the sacrifice, yea, came near, though expecting an answer by fire, yet not in the least afraid. 
Again we say, what holy confidence in God. Elijah was fully assured that the one whom he served, whom he was now honoring, would not hurt him. Ah, his long sojourn at the brook Cherith, and the lengthy days spent in his upper room in the widow's house at Zarephath had not been wasted. He had improved the time by spending it in the secret place of the Most High, abiding under the shadow of the Almighty, and there he had learned precious lessons which none of the schools of men can impart. Fellow minister, suffer us to point out that power from God in public ordinances can only be acquired by drawing upon the power of God in private. Holy boldness before the people must be obtained by prostration of soul at the footstool of mercy in the secret place. And said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. Verse 36. This was far more than a reference to the ancestors of his people or the founders of his nation. It was something more than either a patriotic or sentimental utterance. It gave further evidence of the strength of his faith and made evidence the ground upon which it rested. It was the owning of Jehovah as the covenant God of his people, who as such had promised never to forsake them. The Lord had entered into solemn covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17:7 7 and 8, which he had renewed with Isaac and Jacob. To that covenant the Lord made reference when he appeared unto Moses at the burning bush. Exodus 3.6 and 2.24 When Israel was oppressed by the Syrians in the days of Jehoahaz, we are told that the Lord was gracious unto them and had compassion upon them and had respect unto them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 2 Kings 13.23 Elijah's acting faith on the covenant in the hearing of the people reminded them of the foundation of their hope and blessing. Oh, what a difference it makes when we are able to plead the blood of the everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13.20 Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel. Verse 36 This was Elijah's first petition, and mark well the nature of it, for it makes clearly manifest his own character. The heart of the prophet was filled with a burning zeal for the glory of God. He could not bear to think of those wrecked altars and martyred prophets. He could not tolerate the land being defiled with the God-insulting and soul-destroying idolatry of the heathen. It was not himself that he cared about, but the horrible fact that the people of Israel were entertaining the idea that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had abdicated in favor of Baal. His spirit was stirred to its depths as he contemplated how blatantly and grievously Jehovah was dishonored. Oh, that we were more deeply moved by the languishing state of Christ's cause upon earth today, by the inroads of the enemy and the awful desolation he has wrought in Zion. Alas, that a spirit of indifference, or at least of fatalistic stoicism, is freezing so many of us. The chief burden of Elijah's prayer was that God should vindicate himself that day, that he would make known his mighty power, that he would turn the people's heart back unto himself. It is only when we can look beyond personal interests and plead for the glory of God that we reach the place where he will not deny us. Alas, we are so anxious about the success of our work, the prosperity of our church or denomination, that we lose sight of the infinitely more wonderful matter of the vindication and honor of our Master. 
Is it any wonder that our circle enjoys so little of God's blessing? Our blessed Redeemer has set us a better example. I seek not mine own glory. John 8.50 Declare that one who was meek and lowly in heart. Father, glorify thy name. John 12.28 Was the controlling desire of his heart. When longing for his disciples to bear fruit, it was that herein is my Father glorified. John 15.8 I have glorified thee on the earth. John 17.4 Said the Son at the completion of his mission. And now he declares, Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 14.13 Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant. How blessed to behold this man, by whose word the windows of heaven were closed, at whose prayers the dead was restored to life, before whom even the king quailed. How blessed, we say, to see him taking such a place before God. Let it be known that I am thy servant. It was the subordinate place, the lowly place, the place where he was under orders. A servant is one whose will is entirely surrendered to another, whose personal interests are completely subservient to those of his master, whose desire and joy it is to please and honor the one who employs him. And this was the attitude and habitude of Elijah. He was completely yielded unto God, seeking his glory and not his own. Christian service is not doing something for Christ. It is doing those things which he has appointed and assigned us. Fellow ministers, is this our character? Are our wills so surrendered to God that we can truly say, I am thy servant? But note another thing here. Let it be known that I am thy servant. Own me as such by the manifestation of thy power. It is not enough that the minister of the gospel be God's servant. It must be made manifest that he is such. How? By his separation from the world, by his devotedness to his master, by his love for and care of souls, by his untiring labors, his self-denial and self-sacrifice, by spending himself and being spent in ministering to others, and by the Lord's seal on his ministry. By their fruits ye shall know them, by the holiness of their character and conduct, by the working of God's Spirit in and through them, by the walk of those who sit under their ministry. How we need to pray, let it be known that I am thy servant. Chapter 18 Effectual Prayer At the close of our last chapter we were occupied with the prayer offered by Elijah on Mount Carmel. This supplication of the prophet requires to be examined attentively, for it was a prevalent one, securing a miraculous answer. There are two chief reasons why so many of the prayers of God's people are unavailing. First, because they fail to meet the requirements of acceptable prayer. Second, because their supplications are unscriptural, not patterned after the prayers recorded in Holy Writ. It would take us too far afield to enter into full detail as to what requirements we must meet and what conditions have to be fulfilled by us in order to obtain the ear of God, so that he will show himself strong on our behalf. Yet we feel this is a suitable place to say something on this highly important and most practical subject, and at least mention some of the principal requirements for success at the throne of grace. Prayer is one of the outstanding privileges of the Christian life. 
It is the appointed means for experimental access to God, for the soul to draw nigh unto its maker, for the Christian to have spiritual communion with his Redeemer. It is the channel through which we are to seek all needed supplies of spiritual grace and temporal mercies. It is the avenue through which we are to make known our need unto the Most High and look for Him to minister to the same. It is the channel through which faith ascends to heaven and in response thereto miracle descends to earth. But if that channel be choked, those supplies are withheld. If faith be dormant, miracles do not take place. Of old God had to say of his people, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Isaiah 59.2 And is it any different today? Again he declared, Your sins have withholden good things from you. Jeremiah 5.25 And is not this the case with most of us now? Have we not occasion to acknowledge we have transgressed and have rebelled? Thou hast not pardoned, thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayers should not pass through. Lamentations 3, verses 42 and 44. Sad, sad indeed when such be the case. If the professing Christian supposes that, no matter what the character of his walk may be, he has but to plead the name of Christ and his petitions are assured of an answer, he is sadly deluded. God is ineffably holy. And his word expressly declares, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm 66.18 It is not sufficient to believe in Christ or plead his name in order to ensure answers to prayer. There must be practical subjection to and daily fellowship with him. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. John 15.7 It is not sufficient to be a child of God and call upon our Heavenly Father. There must be an ordering of our lives according to His revealed will. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. 1 John 3.22 It is not sufficient to come boldly under the throne of grace. We must draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 10.22 That which defiles being removed by the cleansing precepts of the word. See Psalm 119.9 Apply the principles briefly alluded to above and mark how those requirements were met and those conditions fulfilled in the case of Elijah. He had walked in strict separation from the evil which abounded in Israel refusing to compromise or have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. In a day of spiritual degeneracy and apostasy, he had maintained personal communion with the Holy One, as his, the Lord God of Israel, before whom I stand, 1 Kings 17.1 clearly attested. He walked in practical subjection to God, as his refusing to move until the word of the Lord came unto him, 17.8, bore definite witness. His life was ordered by the revealed will of his master, as was manifested by his obedience to the divine command to dwell with a widow woman at Zarephath. He shrank not from discharging the most unpleasant duties, as was plain from his prompt compliance with the divine order, Go, show thyself to Ahab, 18.1. And such a one had the ear of God, 
had power with God. Now if what has just been pointed out serves to explain the prevalency of Elijah's intercession, does it not, alas, also furnish the reason why so many of us have not the ear of God, have not power with him in prayer? It is the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man which availeth much with God. James 5.16 And that signifies something more than a man to whom the righteousness of Christ has been imputed. Let it be duly noted that this statement occurs not in Romans, where the legal benefits of the atonement are chiefly in view, but in James, where the practical and experimental side of the gospel is unfolded. The righteous man in James 5.16, as also throughout the book of Proverbs, and likewise the just, is one who is right with God practically in his daily life, whose ways please the Lord. If we walk not in separation from the world, if we deny not self, strive not against sin, mortify not our lusts, but gratify our carnal nature, is there any wonder that our prayer life is cold and formal and our petitions unanswered? In examining the prayer of Elijah on Mount Carmel, we have seen that, first, at the time of the evening sacrifice, the prophet came near, that is, unto the altar on which the slain bullock lay, came near, though expecting an answer by fire. There we behold his holy confidence in God, and are shown the foundation on which his confidence rested, namely, an atoning sacrifice. Second, we have heard him addressing Jehovah as the covenant God of his people, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel. Third, we have pondered his first petition, Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, that is, that he would vindicate his honor and glorify his own great name. The heart of the prophet was filled with a burning zeal for the living God, and he could not endure the sight of the land being filled with idolatry. Fourth, and that I am thy servant, whose will is entirely surrendered to thee, whose interests are wholly subordinated to thine. Own me as such by a display of thy mighty power. These are the elements, dear reader, which enter into the prayer which is acceptable to God and which meets with a response from him. There must be more than going through the motions of devotion. There must be an actual drawing near of the soul unto the living God, and for that there must be a putting away and forsaking of all that is offensive to him. It is sin which alienates the heart from him, which keeps the conscience at a guilty distance from him, and that sin must needs be repented of and confessed if access is to be ours again. What we are now inculcating is not legalistic. We are insisting upon the claims of divine holiness. Christ has not died in order to purchase for his people an indulgence for them to live in sin. Rather did he shed his precious blood to redeem them from all iniquity and to purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Titus 2.14 And just so far as they neglect those good works will they fail to enter experimentally into the benefits of his redemption. But in order for an erring and sinful creature to draw near the thrice holy one with any measure of humble confidence he must know something of the relation which he sustains unto him, not by nature, but by grace. It is the blessed privilege of the believer, no matter how great a failure he feels himself to be, provided he is sincere in mourning his failures and honest in his endeavors to please his Lord, 
to remind himself that he is approaching one in covenant relationship with him, yea, to plead that covenant before him. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.